Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have Father James Dominic Rooney coming from Hong Kong Baptist University. He's an assistant professor there, and he's also a Dominican friar. His works in metaphysics, medieval philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and philosophy of religion. Today we're going to be talking about the doctrine of hell. As always, this podcast is brought to you by you. So if you value what we do, please consider going to patreon.com slash here in apologetics and supporting. You can literally just do it for like a dollar a month, penny day, pennies a day, and that'd just be huge. Um, but let's get rolling. So Father Rooney, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, very good. Nice to have nice to be on your show, Zach. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited for today. Um, talking about the doctrine of hell. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Because it's your first time on the show. So just to introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Father James Dominic Rooney. I, uh, as Zach mentioned, I'm a Dominican friar. I teach philosophy at Hong Kong Baptist University in Hong Kong. Uh, currently, I'm in Taiwan. Very lovely evening here in Taiwan on the feast, by the way, of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So a good, a good day to have a conversation about the love of God. Uh, as Zach mentioned, I work in medieval philosophy and uh, essentially medieval philosophy and uh, metaphysics. Uh, I write on things connected with it like philosophy of religion or political philosophy or ethics. So those are the sort of things I do professionally. That's awesome. Um, so today we're going to be talking about like the Orthodox Christian doctrine of hell and like universalism and like all this stuff. Um, when we're thinking about like this topic, what got you interested in thinking about like hell and universalism and all this stuff? Well, you know, it's 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 a little funny. I've kind of become Father Hell over the past uh, year. Uh, I have to be honest; it wasn't something I I, I decided to do one day exactly. Um, so I I should say my initial interest in some of these topics generically goes way back. So I'm I'm sort of working right now on a book on grace and free will, and I've written a few things about grace and free will. So that's sort of one of my research areas in metaphysics is about problems of freedom. And, you know, theology has its own problems with freedom. Um, so that's sort of how this interest got started. And then more immediately, what happened is uh, I've been following for some years. I knew David Bentley Hart, for instance, when he was at St. Louis University. And then he wrote this famous book, That All Shall Be Saved, where he defends universalism. And... Uh, uh, it took me a few years, but I'd been talking with some people about it and following one of these universalist kind of blogs uh, by a father, Al Kimmel. And uh, so eventually I decided to write something about it because people kept telling me I should write something about it since I kept talking about it every once in a while. Um, so that's how it got started. And the, the, the article I wrote for Church Life Journal got pretty, uh, got a lot of attention and then I wrote two follow-up articles for them, and I decided to incorporate it into the book I'm working on. So I've been writing some articles on universalism. Uh, I should say this is perhaps an interesting thing to say or, or a little uh, side note. Uh, one of the things I might mention is uh, I think this debate has opened my eyes to something I didn't think about before, which was a lot of people approach hell as a problem of freedom, and I'm not sure that's exactly the right way to approach it anymore, um, because I think that's a typical response people have. But but now my interest has has has. Uh, uh, I wrote an article that was recently accepted. I think one of the things this debate is very closely connected with 
is questions about pantheism and panentheism. So there are a number of Christians today who uh, are very excited about the idea that we are somehow a part of God, or we, God is somehow, uh, everything is in God. That's panentheism. Uh, this idea, I think, is, is a very bad one. <laughs> so, but I think it is very closely connected with why universalism has become popular, is because I think some people have a very uh, odd doctrine of God. So I think these two things are more connected than we might initially realize. Okay, so this is going to be helpful. When we, it's, I appreciate you kind of sharing your story and what got you interested in this and like thinking about like this pantheism, like panentheism um, idea. And I'll keep that in the back of my mind as we kind of get into this discussion. Uh, one thing I know that it, my internet's being kind of weird, so if I disappear, just keep talking. Um, but it should be fine, I think, because I've been dealing with this the past couple of times we've done this. Um, so let's look at like the doctrine of hell. So like when we're thinking about like an orthodox Christian doctrine of hell, um, what does that look like, JD? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm Catholic. So, I mean, of course, we have certain things in our tradition. We understand there to be like doctrinal minimums, right? There are mm -hmm. doctrinal minimums. So I, I can present what I think the doctrinal minimums are because I think the Catholic Church teaches good ones. I mean, I think they're reasonable. I think what they say is, is a good perspective on this. So the Catholic Church, I'm just going to sort of read a few lines from the Catholic Catechism. This, by the way, for people at home is paragraph 1033. So essentially, uh, this is what it says. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him, but we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, our neighbor, or against ourselves. Our Lord warns us we shall be separated with him from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. So this, uh, this is one important thing. I'll add one more thing. So 1037, God predestines no one to hell. For this, for going to hell, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary, and persist in it, persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of our faithful, the church implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And then it cites one of our prayers from the Eucharist. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. So what I'll just say in this first part um, is we have some biblical data. I skipped over some of the biblical data. 1034 talks about the fire of hell. It just cites uh, biblical passages about the fires of hell. Uh, and uh, that people will be, depart from me cursed, you cursed into the eternal fire. But it, uh, it doesn't specify what that is. And uh, I should also say in 1035, it notes, the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God. Okay. So on the Catholic doctrine, the, what I think of is the basic Orthodox doctrine that everybody agreed on for centuries 
that I think the Protestants basically agreed on uh, as well uh, is that hell is the state of being separated from God by your own free choice. So uh, essentially, we have an idea in Christianity that when people are in good relationship with God, we call this justification. When somebody is a good person or uh, has faith, hope, and love of God in their hearts, they are justified. They're in a good state in regard to God. They love God. So I'll often just paraphrase things. We sometimes say somebody's in a state of grace. Somebody didn't. I'll just say you love God. And I mean being in this special state, having faith, hope, and love of God. So hell is very simple. Hell is the possibility of not being in love with God forever. And all that is required for the doctrine of hell to be true is that it is possible for somebody not to be in love with God forever. And what we teach is the chief punishment of hell is that eternal separation from God not being in a state of faith, hope, and love of him. So the reason this is, a, this, is, this is eternal punishment, or this is a punishment, is because human hearts are made for God. So it says, again, in 1035, God is he whom alone, man, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. So in the Catholic tradition, we say there are two punishments of hell, uh, there is the primary one or the essential one is the pain of loss, loss of God. So not being in love with God forever is sufficient to cause the pain of loss. Uh, and the pain of loss is, is, as the catechism says, the chief punishment of hell. There is, Catholic tradition says, a second punishment, which is the pain of sense, uh, which is whatever we think this fire is. Mm. So the scripture talks about a fire, uh, but the church, our Catholic church, has never taken a stand on what it is. Okay, so that's the basic. That's the basic doctrine. God's going to do something uh, as a result of people being in hell. That's the fire, but the the essential stuff. What what happens is people choose not to love God. And they stay in that state forever. That's what hell is. Um, now, the reason I also mentioned this claim about predestination is we do disagree with Protestants on this. So some Protestants, Calvinists in particular, uh, John Calvin, and some uh, Protestants around John Calvin at the time and throughout history, have held that God predestines people equally to heaven and hell. God does something or God makes it such that people were not able to do otherwise than go to hell. Um, so we can think of double predestination is what it's sometimes called in a kind of active causal way. God needs to punish certain people for his glory. That's, that's sort of one view. Or you might say God is, uh, determines everything in such a way that everything is necessary. Everything occurs necessarily. So people don't really have free choice so there's, there's a turning away from God that's part of going to hell, but like God causes it. God causes mm -hmm. it. You couldn't have done anything else. Um, in Catholic doctrine, we reject that. That's, that's very clearly rejected by our, our theology. So the Council of Trent, when we divided from the, the Protestants, uh, we said very clearly, 
people can resist grace if they if they so desire. People can reject God's grace. Uh, the will is not passive. God predestines no one to hell. God elects people in his mercy for no reason of their, uh, for no good of theirs, right? People can't do good without God. But it affirms an asymmetry here. It says we can't do anything good without God, but everything evil, as it were, comes from us. So God predestines nobody to hell. He only allows people to go to hell subsequent to them rejecting grace. So that, in a nutshell, is what I call the orthodox doctrine of hell. Now, let me just point out something that's not in here exactly, is uh, there's no uh, claim God inflicts damnation upon people. I think that's what I would call predestining, some, predestining someone to hell. God doesn't want this kind of state for any individual. Um, he doesn't predestine it. Uh, the, as I said, there's this second claim about the fire. The fire comes, but in fact, the question about what's God's relation to the fire and what is the fire is, I think, a very important one that we can talk about next. Um, but uh, in essence, because God doesn't cause sin, God doesn't cause damnation. He doesn't inflict it upon people. The second thing he doesn't do is he doesn't keep people from repenting. So I had somebody who was telling me the other day, oh, wouldn't it be horrible? People are going to get to hell and they're going to show up in the fire and they're going to hear about maybe the Mormons were right and they're going to wonder, can't, why can't I repent? I'm repenting, God, take me now. Mm. And uh, I'm sorry for everything I did. And he's going to look down and say, no, 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 no. I'm not accepting it. Too late. That's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. That's crazy on the Orthodox doctrine of hell. So the Orthodox doctrine of hell doesn't say anything about keep God keeping people there or God stopping people from repenting or God not accepting their repentance. So the one thing I want to just add, this is, of course, a Catholic doctrine, but I think it's a very helpful way to think about it. We don't need to mention anything about whether people can change their wills after they die. Let's just, let's just put it aside. So Catholic doctrine has often said people are judged at the moment of their death and all that. Let's, let's ignore it for a moment, okay? It's not part of the orthodox doctrine of hell that people can't change their wills after they die. So Catholic doctrine has this second thing called purgatory, which is we think people, uh, after they die, there are some people who are not, uh, who have some love of God in their heart, who have some potential for loving God in their heart. And these people uh, in the afterlife uh, eventually come to love God well. They, they are purified, we say. That's what purgatory is about, is being pur purified of their attachment to sin. Um, Aquinas and some classical authors say the fire of hell is the same fire as purgatory. And they say, well, eventually, uh, you might think of it this way, is the way I like to explain it. You can just say something like this. You don't have to think about fixity of the will after death. You can just say, well, you know, people have, as it were, an opportunity to change after they die. And the people that change are the people that are in purgatory. And the people that don't change are the people we're talking about who are in hell. So to be in hell on the classical doctrine is to freely choose something that's not God. So by thinking of it that way, sort of pretending there's post-mortem repentance, right, is a way of sort of getting the idea, right? 
mm. getting the right idea. So uh, this is this doesn't exactly represent our doctrine of purgatory. We don't think people can really repent after death technically, but I think that's a good way to think about it. That's how C.S. Lewis illustrates purgatory in The Great Divorce. Um, some people from hell get on a bus and go to heaven and get off and stay there. Um, everybody is free to do that. So that's that's a, a very helpful illustration to understand uh, why you don't need this, doc, this, this sort of stuff about fixity of will. God isn't keeping anybody there. God isn't inflicting damnation in that sense on anybody. So that's my, in a nutshell, presentation. Okay, yeah, that's very helpful. So thank you, JD, for that. Kind of just like outlining these different points. Um, here's one thing I'm wondering. Like one thing you mentioned was like the fires of hell. And like in some sense, like this is like God's involvement, like in hell, whatever that means. Um, a lot of people would think of that as like torment or like torture. Um, what do you think? Like in the Orthodox doctrine, like is God like tormenting people? Is that what the fire means? Like what's going on here? Yeah, so here we get a we get I think theological opinions at this point. Mm -hmm. Theological opinions. I'll tell you what my opinion is, but let me just point out first, as I mentioned, in terms of Christian theology, there's no consensus about this classical Christian theology. So, for instance, Augustine and Aquinas uh, both argue for a material fire. Uh, they think God creates a material fire in the resurrected new. Jerusalem, you know, the new world after the resurrection, there'll be some material fire, or right now there's some material fire somewhere, and this can punish the demons and the damned somehow. So this is this is the one claim that is in the tradition, but it's never been more than a theological opinion. Another theological opinion comes from people like Maximus the Confessor, John Damascene defended this, there are a number of other people who've also defended it, famous church fathers. There's no consensus and no binding teaching either way. The other doctrine is it's not a material fire. It's not a material fire. Uh, fire is somehow metaphorical uh, in scripture. So let me just say why I like the second view. <laughs> so um, I think one of the first problems with the material fire view I think you can make the material fire view work with what I'm going to tell you in a second. But, so I don't think it's as much about matter or immaterial. It doesn't really matter very much, okay? Um, it has to do with what the point of the punishment is. So some people of a, of a classical view had what I would call a strongly retributist, retributivist view of the punishment of hell. What I mean by that is, uh, for example, Augustine and Aquinas say things like this. God doesn't uh, cause people to go to hell. He doesn't create hell in that sense. He doesn't cause sin. He lets people go there. So it's a free choice on their part. But it's good for God then, as a result, to do what's good in response, which is punishment. So the punishment is the pain. So on their view, God also has to cause some pain because the pain is good. Uh, now, the problem with this view is it, it relies on an intuition about, right, that if you do something wrong, pain should happen. Um, a lot of people don't, don't like that view, and I think there's something not quite right about that. Now, I'll just say, I think these, these authors, in fact, um, are not so much committed to the pain themselves, I mean, in terms of their own theory, like Aquinas, 
I think his idea is that um, when people do something wrong, to repair what they've done will necessarily cause them pain because it's, a, it's, it's to turn their wills away from something they like. So that's just what pain is, is turning your will away by from something you like. That's a result, is a kind of pain. Um, I think in this kind of perspective, this is why I like the immaterial fire perspective, is I, I have a different perspective on which what you might think is something like this. Aquinas says the fire of hell and the fire of purgatory are the same fire. Uh, I, I like this view. Uh, and I think you can turn it to, to the this uh, a better way of thinking about why there'd be fire in hell. I think it's it's there's a good way to understand it. This comes from some of the uh, uh, Eastern fathers. They talk about the fire that the fire of God's love is the same fire that delights the saints in heaven as it causes pain to the damned in hell. So you see something like this in Maximus the Confessor uh, says something like this. And I like this idea very much because what you have to say, you don't have to say God needs to cause pain specifically to certain people as a result of their sin. What you say is something like this. After death, God reveals himself to everybody. He's infinitely good, infinitely loving. He makes his glory present to people in the afterlife. And those who are prepared to receive it find joy in what they see and in what they they experience. Whereas those who don't, those who aren't prepared, those who don't like God, are going to be tormented by it. It will cause them pain to know God is like that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this is a good way to think of the immaterial fire, because the experience would be very painful, obviously. So my a good illustration that I've, I've used now, this is a kind of crazy illustration, is some of our, our universalist friends uh, like to tell me, uh, if I found out God allowed anybody to go to hell, I would uh, think God is evil. And no matter how much time I was in heaven, I would never change my mind. I would hate God every moment of my life and uh, for eternity. And I think this is exactly the sort of experience we're thinking about. If God unites himself to them, he never abandons those in hell. He makes it so that their mind is focused on him. On his, on his love for them, but they don't like what they see, right? They think God is hateful. The kind of God that they see is hateful. Then it's, it's naturally going to cause them pain, right? Mm -hmm. But it's nothing about God that's causing them pain. It's, it's them. It's their perspective, the kind of rose-tinted glasses through which they see God. Right, because God is doing something that's good by showing you Himself. He is the good. There's nothing more He could give you, except to show you His own self. So, this is my way of explaining why God doesn't torment people. So, I also used this analogy in this paper I wrote, the incoherences of hard universalism. I said it's it reminds me very much of the case where uh, we can do something good for other people that causes them pain. And we intend their good, we don't intend the pain. And this could be just like what God's doing in hell when we talk about this fire. I think this makes hell very plausible. So we think Christ has united himself to us through the cross. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
So I use this analogy that when we save people who are depressed from committing suicide, people that want to commit suicide, when we do something to save them, to get them help, very often it's the case that they don't appreciate the help. They, they find it uh, hateful that you're trying to stop them, right? That sometimes happens with people that are, that are in that state. Uh, I think we should still say, even though they don't like what you're doing to them by keeping them from hurting themselves, if they were to hurt themselves, they're hurting themselves, right? It's, 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 it's bad for them for them to do what they want. Whereas it's good for them to stop them, even though it causes them psychological pain by stopping them, right? We can only do so much perhaps with people in hell. God, you might say, we can only uh, uh, in this state, right? Where they, they don't like him. Uh, God can be with them. God can give them these good things. Uh, and um, it can be good for them, even if they don't like it. So I think that's a helpful illustration of what we mean when we say that, uh, that God is eternally with those in hell. He's not tormenting them. It's causing them pain, but not, as it were, God isn't aiming to cause them pain. I think that's a very good way to put it. That's helpful. Thank you. Here's a question that I'm kind of thinking about as you're going, like Father Rooney, is to me, like I can see this, like your picture, like the Orthodox picture of hell. And like, it makes sense to me. Like we have people um, who are going of their own free accord um, because they have free will to like, and they choose to like reject God. And like, and as a result of that, they end up in hell. Um, but here's a question I, I'm kind of wondering about. Um, is I feel like that can answer the question of like, well, why would someone go to hell? Well, they can't, like they could repent. They just don't. Um, but then the question to me is like, why would like why would God set up a world like this, a world where people would go to hell and like suffer um, forever? Because it seems like to me like you could say it's because of free will, but like why why would God set up a world like that in the first place? Because it seems like I don't know. It's just kind of rough to think about that. There's people that are going to experience that suffering forever. Yeah. So I mean, I guess what I'd say on the first hand, this is this is one possible objection people have to hell is they say, well. Uh, could God have any good reason for doing this? I think this is this is just uh, a sort of version of the problem of evil. So the famous logical problem of evil is, you know, if we assume, so take the premise, there's, there's supposed to be an all-good, all-loving, all-knowing, omnipotent God out there, and yet bad things happen. Bad things happen. Uh, and people say, well, therefore... These, these two things are logically incompatible. Uh, therefore, there is no God, right? Or God is not omnipotent, omniscient, and so forth. Um, but the classical response to this problem is that uh, this person assumes uh, to be loving or good is to eliminate all evil that one can. Uh, but there are problems with that. So the first is not everything God can do, he does, right? Um, because there might be, on the one hand, there are, there are obviously limits. So I should say also there are obviously limits to what God can do in terms of like logical consistency, right? Like God can't make square circles. So you could think maybe there's something, something like that here. But another way to think about it is God might have some good plan 
some good reason, uh, where he intends to make good things happen as a result of allowing evil. So um, I think you can say something like that in the case of hell. Uh, I think on the one hand, we should be careful. So I always put this here, but people say, oh, you're just saying it's mystery. I, I think it's important to be epistemically humble, to say we don't know why God allows evil of any kind. Uh, we can give reasons that uh, help us see why there's no contradiction. These are kind of uh, what we would call reasons of fittingness, that like there's some scenario where it's possible God has a reason for this, okay? So when I talk about why God permits hell, I'm going to give you what I think are possible reasons. Uh, but I, I don't know what the reasons are. All I have to say is there are some possible reasons. Now, let me give you a really simple one. <laughs> okay, here's a really simple one. Why should God permit hell to be possible? Well, here's one thing from the classical Christian doctrine of hell. Uh, we don't know that any human being is actually there. Hmm. So the Catholic Church has made clear in recent times, most people have assumed Judas is taught to be in hell in the Bible. The Catholic Church has said, well, actually, we haven't taught, nobody's ever definitively taught Judas is in hell. We've never said anybody's in hell, actually. Uh, any human being, at least. We, Satan and things we could talk about in another context. But no human beings in hell. Well, in this context, why would, uh, how could God have a good reason to allow hell to be possible? Allow free will such that people could go to hell? Well, here's an obvious, here's an obvious scenario then, where it makes perfectly good sense for God to be loving and to have a good reason. Maybe there's a logical impossibility that people can be saved, people can love God without free will, and free will makes possible the possibility of, of sin, of rejecting God, creaturely free will of some sort. There's, a, there's an impossibility. If God wants free creatures who love him, he can't eliminate the possibility of sin. But here's the easy scenario, contingent universalism. So on Catholic doctrine, it's not impossible, on the classical Orthodox doctrine, it's not impossible that all people actually go to heaven. It's not impossible. So here's an easy scenario where God has a very good reason to allow the possibility of sin that could lead people to go to hell. Because God plans on saving everybody. He knows everyone's going to be saved, right? Okay, now it's possible for there to be hell and nobody goes there, <laughs> right? So you have a very good reason why God would allow the possibility is because the possibility makes heaven uh, is a necessary condition for heaven to exist. Right. And so if everyone goes to heaven, that would be a very good reason, it seems to me. I mean, it would be an obvious reason, I think. Uh, so that's uh, one way we might we might answer. Uh, but of course, you know, we, we should assume that some people do go to hell. Let's just imagine. Right. We, we assume there. Let's imagine the harder case. Some people are in hell. I mentioned the demons. Let's say the demons are in hell. OK. Why would God create a world where that was possible? Well, here's, here's the answer I give in light of my claims about the fire of hell. I think you might say something like this. 
God only allows a world in which we have free will, where we can sin and go to hell and all that stuff. Because in this world, the one that he allowed that to happen is the one in which he died for us on the cross. And when he died for us on the cross, I think that was a greater good than all human sin, right? That's doctrine, right? That Christ's satisfaction and reconciliation of us with God was perfect. And it had nothing to do with what we contributed to it. So it was perfect regardless of what we do. Well, I found, I mean, I think that uh, Maximus the Confessor gives us a helpful way to think about why this might be uh, the reason Part of the reason God allows hell is because God has chosen never to abandon those people in hell. God has united himself to him. God will be with them. God will uh, uh, help them forever. This is what Christ's cross has done. This is what I think that that uh, fire of hell consists in, is the presence of God to such people. And I think, as I mentioned, I think this good the good of God being with these people, the good of God loving us even when we don't love him is a great enough good for each of us that it that it accounts for why uh, hell is possible. So it seems to me God only allows us to go there because he loves us is, is the sort of way I'd put it. Mm. So, and he loves us um, so much that like he gave his son and that's how we have like the incarnation. This is like a great good um, that's greater than like the suffering of like people Correct, in hell. Like that's kind of suffering. The suffering is so. This is why I think my version of the fire of hell is more consistent with all this story, is because I think the fire of hell is God's love for people. It's mm -hmm. good for people, and it causes them pain by accident. But people are in fact, you might say, on my scenario, universalism is kind of true, <laughs> right? It's mm -hmm. like everybody is in purgatory, right? Well. In one way, they're they're participating in as much joy as they can, right? As much joy as they can, given their state. So you might say God has has chosen to to make a world where He's going to reconcile everything in Himself, and that's that's what justifies it. That's what justifies the possibility of sin. Is God's going to reconcile everything? So my picture in one of the other articles in the hard universalism, creaturely freedom and grace or whatever it was, um, I gave a, uh, an analogy. I said, I talked about why people in heaven might be, might be uh, how we should think about the relation of people in heaven and of God to people in hell in the afterlife. And I said, here's, here are two things that I think we can think of. Uh, that have to do with classical Catholic doctrine, Christian doctrine about the resurrected bodies. So one of the things we say is, you see in those nice pictures in Catholic churches when people are in the last judgment, there's this bishop, his head is in his hands, right? He's not got his head on anymore, right? And Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, has the wounds in his hands and his side, right? And uh, all the people in he heaven, right, have all their wounds, St. Augustine in the City of God explains, he says, these things are going to be in the resurrected body just like Jesus's because they're not, uh, they don't prevent us from flourishing. They're uh, somehow trophies of glory, trophies mm -hmm. of glory. Uh, so one of the things I said is, well, there's an analogy we can make between that 
and the case of people in hell, which is because Christ has united himself to them, we can think of what they are like in the afterlife as like the wound in Jesus' side that continues forever in his resurrected, glorified body. Christ holds them close to himself. They're part of him forever. Uh, but there's a kind of glory about it because even though they're in pain, uh, they're in pain for kind of good reason, right? Because God is holding them, right? Holding on to them and wants the good for them. So one of the things I said too about the blessed is Mother Teresa had this kind of silly dream where she died and she went to heaven and St. Peter said, we won't let you into heaven. There are no poor people here. There's nothing for you to do. Go home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Mother Teresa said, I'm going to go get all the poor people and bring them up here so that then you'll let me in. <laughs> and I think that's a very good way to think about the relation of the blessed to those in hell, which is you might think they're going to be with them forever. They care about them in that sense. And, uh, they realize, right, that the, the damned are not going to change, but they can be with them to do what's good for them. You might say they're like the poor in heaven. Uh, so I said, Jesus says, the poor you will have always with you. I said, well, maybe that's kind of literal, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe that's that's a way to think about what hell is, is sort of the, the, the people we, we care about in the afterlife uh, are still with us, and we care for them, even though they they have, you know, they're sort of prevented they, they, from their interior character from responding to us. But there are people in this life that don't respond to our care, right? That doesn't make our care any less important and good and loving, right? So there are people, I worked at a hospice, right, with people in comas, right? You know, you go hold their hand and talk to them because it's the loving thing to do, not because they can hear you, right? I mean, sometimes they can hear you, right, and feel you, but you think that this presence to people like that is part of what love demands and what's good for them, right? Mm. Even if they're not going to respond to you, you're not going to hear them say, oh, I heard everything you said, right, before they die. Uh, you don't know, right, whether they can hear any of that. So mm -hmm. I'll just I'll just put that out there and say that's that's one way I think we can think of the, the reason God might allow this is because the world where he does allow it is a better world than we might think. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so I'm thinking about like what you said about like the fires of hell being God's love. And like, I'm wondering like, so what do you think of like, is hell? Like, is it like, like we, in my background, I always thought of hell as like a place where there's like a tremendous amount of like actual like anguish. Like we think about, like, I always think, go back to like, and I'm not a biblical like scholar by any means, but I think about things like the idea of there being like weeping and gnashing of teeth or like where it's like, depart from me, I never knew you. Like these things. So in the picture of hell I get in my mind um, isn't where one where God's like torturing or tormenting people, but one where the, like there is this immense like sorrow and like weeping and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in your view, like when we're talking about the fires being God's love, like are they, like is that happening? Is there also like joy in heaven, in he not in heaven, obviously in heaven, but is there joy in like hell as well? Like what are like the emotions that you're kind of seeing here? Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's, first I'll just say it's dangerous to speculate about the psychology of people in hell, but I'm going to do it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the first thing I'll say is I'm not saying that they're in joy. Okay. So I think, Yes, this is the pain of loss, right? Is there in a kind of, we might say just 
this is why I like the, this is why I use the analogy of suicides, right? They're depressed, right? They're in despair, weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? That's a kind of mental anguish. So I agree, right? That's the biblical picture. Now, uh, I'll give two uh, claims, two very, very speculative hypotheses that I think are just uh, a nice illustration of what else we might say about their psychology. So I think that they're in anguish is pretty clearly the biblical doctrine. So I think that's safe to say. And uh, I think that's what we should say. But there are other things we might say about their psychology that might be a helpful way to think about it. I think one of them is John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, once wrote something, I forget it was an appendix to some other work, but he talked about what was called the refrigerium. Uh, in the early church, there were some people that thought God would give a kind of uh, uh, cool down period to people in hell. He'd give them breaks. They could go out and get tea and come back. Uh, and John Henry Newman had a kind of uh, interesting interpretation of this doctrine where he thought it was orthodox or potentially orthodox to hold a kind of view like this. So he said, well, God can't exactly give them breaks, but you might think something like this. Well, the consciousness of people in the afterlife is going to be quite different than the consciousness we have now. And the consciousness of people in heaven and hell is going to be different. Their psychological perception of things. So he said, well, maybe, maybe the people in hell, we can support this kind of refrigerium doctrine because maybe they, uh, they don't perceive the suffering as, as being, uh, as having gone on for eternity. Maybe it sort of all appears to them in a kind of psychologically, a kind of short moment, right? It doesn't seem, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, the anguish is not being, we might say something like this. It's possible God is helping them so that the anguish is not greater than it has to be, right? So that the psychology is sort of modified. Um, I think that's fine. I mean, I think that's like possible. I don't know where we'd get that. But I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, in one way that fits with my doctrine of the fire of hell, right? God does things to help them, right? Short of them rejecting him, God doesn't reject them. So mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing in the psychology. So you can say John Henry Newman says, well, maybe God is going to do something to their psychology. Okay, that's one, one cool answer. Uh, a second one that I also think is kind of neat, is uh, Jacques Maritain, a famous French Catholic Thomistic philosopher. He wrote a book near the end of his life, or an essay, where he defended a view, a posthumous essay, where he defended the view that maybe we could affirm a kind of universalism uh, where people continue to experience the pain of loss in hell, but eventually the pain of the fire, the pain of sense, is like the fire of purgatory. And it moves everybody into a state like Catholic. We, we have this doctrine for unbaptized, or not doctrine. There's this theological idea that for the unbaptized babies who die without anything but original sin, they're not punished. They only, they, they don't end up seeing God in the beatific vision, but they experience perfect natural happiness. Um, Jacques Maritain says, well, maybe that happens to people in hell. They still have the regret, the pain of loss, but the pain of sense entirely purifies them 
and moves them into a state of pure natural happiness. He says, here's a theory. Here's a theory of what God can do. It's possible for God to do this, he says. Um, it doesn't contradict our doctrine. It doesn't contradict the orthodox doctrine. So I think actually both of these proposals, Newman's and Maritans, are compatible, as they say, with the orthodox doctrine of hell. And mm. I think both of them uh, clearly are, are ways of working out, you might say, the consequences of my doctrine of the fire, my opinion about yeah. the fire, right? Because mm. this is sort of what I might say too then is, you know, like when I said people in a nursing home, right, don't respond to you. Well, you know, maybe it does change people. Maybe, maybe the people in hell, you know, they hate God in a certain way. They're not going to stop, right? Not, they're not going to start loving God at any point. But maybe what will happen is you could say they start to love the natural things that they can love, right? Mm. They recognize they're with people that love them even if they don't like the motivations of the people, right? They don't understand why they love God. You might say something like this. It's like the atheists, right, in the afterlife, right? They, 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 they don't understand what's happening. They, they don't get it, right? It's not making any sense to them. They're not happy about that. But they can be happy eventually about the other stuff. Right? Hmm. They can be happy that they're, with, that they're alive, right? They're with people, people love them, right? There's good things. They're not going to need to eat and sleep and all that stuff. Um, they can know lots of good things. Okay, so maybe this is the scenario. And I think that, you know, is, is much less worrisome, right? That's why people would come up with these possibilities is because it makes it look like, you know, what we're trying to do is say something like God doesn't, I mean, this is, you might say these possibilities reflect the classical doctrines intuitions because the classical doctrines intuitions at root are, God doesn't do anything to people to make them go to hell. So if you think that's that's the basic doctrine, then it would make sense that God does everything he can short of changing people's wills to make it better for them. Mm. So that's that was Jacques Maritain's argument why his case would, would work. Is mm. okay. as long as God, you know, uh doesn't want to change people's wills, well, he can do all the other stuff he can too. So he can make these other things happen. Mm, okay. Thank you. That's very helpful, Father Rooney. Um, one thing you've kind of hinted at a few times that I want that I want to talk about is like this idea of like post-mortem, like uh or not post-mortem repentance, but first like thinking about like can we hope that all people are saved? Because you mentioned like even like in your view, like in the Catholic Church, they like there's not even the claim that like Judas is in hell. Um, so can we hope that all people like will be saved when we're thinking about people um, that aren't Christians now? Yeah. And so that's my answer. Yes. Now, <laughs> and is there, is there me, plausibility? Let me, let me just qualify your, your response though, your question. Mm -hmm. So yeah. can I believe everyone is saved? Yes. The way you put it was about Christians, everyone who's not Christian now. So I'm going to have to take umbrage with that little part of the question, okay. which is, which is, I don't think only Christians go to heaven exactly. So mm -hmm. by Christian, you might mean a baptized person, person who was baptized with water and, and said, I believe in Jesus in this life. But uh, again, this is part of this is Catholic doctrine has worked out the theology of this. So I'm appealing to things we say, but mm -hmm. I'll give you the scenario of what, what we think is what is necessary and sufficient to go to heaven. What you need to have, and if you have it, it's enough, 
is faith in God, hope in God, and love of God. These Having these three things is a product of grace. You can't have them by just, you know, reading books or something, right? It doesn't happen automatically, right? It's a result of God intervening in our lives, faith, hope, and love. And we think this faith, hope, and love, having these things, will give you the desire, if you have them, you'll have an implicit desire to do what God wants you to do, which would constitute, we think, an implicit desire for baptism, an implicit desire to be baptized. If you knew God wanted you to be baptized, you would do it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in this state, if you have faith, hope, and love, okay. So on my view, I'll give you a, a sort of concrete example. So it's very easy to, to see that people before Jesus went to heaven without being Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And they did that because they followed what their, right, the, the sort of things they knew about God, right? The Jewish people trusted in God's promises before Jesus came, and they went to heaven by reason of that faith. So if it happened before Jesus came, we think it's possible now, right? It just depends on your situation, right? which is some people have, have experienced the gospel and God's grace in such a way that if they reject it, they are rejecting it knowingly. Mm. But not everybody is in that state necessarily. We don't know, you know? So some people can have faith, hope, and love and maybe in a very weird way get so mixed up that they say they're atheists. I think that's possible. I think that's possible. Somebody could get that intellectually mixed up and think they're atheist, but they actually love God. They just don't know his name, you might say, right? They, they're mixed up. Maybe that, I think this actually very much happens to people. So I'll give you an example. Um, I went to a Buddhist temple that was, uh, some Buddhist nuns are there from, from Malaysia. And when they were young, they joined a Christian cult, a cult that was that was run by Christians that abused them, beat them, and did real bad stuff to them. They went on to become missionaries for the cult. And part of the cult's doctrine, by the way, was, I think, a very abusive doctrine of hell, right? Where they said God is going to send you to hell, right? You know, God is, you've got to be happy that God is sending you to hell. And, and uh, you know, God just picks and chooses some people. We can't do, you know, he's going to make all your family go to hell, all this kind of nasty stuff. Okay. Uh, well, uh, it was no surprise that eventually these people uh, gave up on said cult and uh, they rejected Christianity entirely. They became Buddhists, okay? Mm. But I think in Buddhism, Buddhism's an atheist religion, by the way. I mean, there's no God. They think God is actually impossible in traditional Buddhism. Uh, but I actually think these ladies in question may have continued to, may have, through their rejection of, of this cult, come to a better understanding of who and what God was. I, I, I think they were not as culpable for rejecting Christianity nominally as other people, right? I think their situation makes it very uh, comprehensible why they rejected this God that was being taught to them and why they accepted this other kind of religion and I think in their case, it may have brought them closer to a real relationship with God. I don't know if they really have faith, hope, and love of God. Maybe they don't. You know, like I went and talked to them and I tried to tell them why I think, you know, uh, Christianity is true. And I don't think that they're, 
decision was was quite quite right. Uh, you know, I think they may have been mixed up, right? What Christianity is with what the cult taught, but mm -hmm. I think they certainly might. You know, I don't know. God might have been working through this circumstance. Maybe He'll bring them back to Himself through it. Maybe He already has brought them to Himself somehow. So, on this way of thinking, the way you can think about it is. What's important is that you love God and want to do what he wants you to do. You want to follow the truth and the good where it leads you. That's sort of what's important, right? Because it's it's not so much that you're Protestant and I'm Catholic, right? Uh, I think Catholicism is true and better, right? That we have doctrines that are true. But I don't necessarily think people that are Protestant are going to hell or anything. I think, though, the bad state is when you don't care, right? You don't care whether you're Protestant or Catholic or Buddhist, right? You don't care about the truth. I think that's the morally bad circumstance. Right. I think what you want to do, what you should want to do, what you have to want to do is to do what God wants you to do. You want to love God, love truth and goodness, and to be doing things for that reason. That's just what it is to have faith, hope, and love, is to do things for God's sake alone, right? And somebody can do things for God's sake alone and not know his name. They're doing it for truth's sake, for love's sake, for goodness' sake. Well, God is the truth. God is love. God is the good. So if you're really doing that, then uh, it, it would have to be a product of grace for you to do it. Mm. Okay, yeah. That, sorry, they so cut that, you off? That's my qualification. That's my qualification. Long, complicated answer to say, I think that's why a lot of people don't like the doctrine of hell is because they think non-Christians are all going there. Well, mm -hmm. that's, that's not part of the classical doctrine. Okay, yeah, that's very helpful. So thank you for that, Father Rooney. One more thing on like this hell topic that's coming up. You mentioned earlier the idea of like post-mortem repentance. Um, where exactly is like the Catholic Church stand on post-mortem repentance? And like, do you think that like, do you think that's a possibility? Like that people may like post-mortally, like maybe they reject Christ in this life, but they may come to like um, affirm Christ in the next life and like go to heaven, things like that. Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think what I just said, combined with some of the things I said about purgatory, should answer the question. So okay. uh, let's let's put them together real quick. So the first thing I want to say is, literally speaking, directly, explicitly speaking, we reject postmortem repentance, doctrinally speaking. So what we say is, when people die, they immediately go to heaven or hell. After death, that's it. There's no there's no repentance anymore. So that's, that's like our doctrine. And we get that from, from scripture. So I think that's scriptural. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, people think the Catholic Church just makes this shit up, right? Okay. I don't think we do. I think it's just a good reading mm -hmm. of the Bible. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but that's our doctrine. But I don't think in one way, you might say, I don't think it, it matters as much because I think what people think of when they think of postmortem repentance uh, is much closer to what I, as I mentioned about purgatory, and about mm -hmm. other kinds of situations. Like when we were talking about, will a non-Christian, after they die, they have faith, hope, and love, will they come to acknowledge Christ? Well, of course, right? If they mm -hmm. have faith, hope, and love, and they see Christ there resurrected, and they realize that's what they've always been in love with, is that guy over there, right? They're going to, after death, they're going to find out, right? So in one way, that's that's obvious. There's a case in one of C.S. Lewis's books where like that happens, right? Uh, there's this soldier, I forget what his name is, but he's fighting for the bad guy, Toth, the bad mm. evil demon guy. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he eventually at the end finds out 
turns out Toth is not a god at all. Aslan is the god, right? And uh, and Aslan says something to him, which is like, don't be sad. I counted everything you did for Toth because you thought he was the good guy. You thought mm -hmm. he was me. So I counted everything you did as for me. And Toth and the, the this soldier is like, oh, okay, right? You know, and <laughs> I think that's sort of the the post-mortem situation. Um, mm. But I don't think that that's a moral conversion, right? That's about finding new information based on what your moral state already was, right? So becoming Christian in that way wouldn't really be a change of your heart. You'd already have wanted to serve God, right? You just didn't know who he was. Um, but the purgatory thing is about a kind of moral change. So we think a kind of moral change is possible in the afterlife. This is, this is the doctrine of purgatory. And I'm going to give you a silly example. In the early church, they, they prayed for people when they died, but it took them a long while to sort of figure out how to talk about the difference between purgatory and hell. Okay. So purgatory is an invented word in the Middle Ages to sort of describe the difference. They said, well, just everyone's in hell, but some people might get out. Okay, that's sort of the early church's uh, a way of talking about it was, was like, everyone's in hell, but we pray for people that they can kind of get out, some of them. Okay. Um, over time, it became clearer what the difference was. But uh, the way we think about it now is, is something like this. But I think you can understand postmortem repentance very well this way. When you die, there's a way in which God is going to give you special graces up to the moment you die. I'm sure, right, at the moment of death, I've seen it myself, right? At the moment of death, people are in a special spiritual state, right? God is going to be there in a special way, their guardian angel, I'm sure for lots of people, I think it's a very good, pious belief. God is going to give you explicit, actual graces, graces at the moment you die to make a good decision. So mm -hmm. I think that's a very pious, good thing to believe. I think it's empirical that that happens. But um, I think, uh, you know, when we talk about what happens after we die, we say, well, when you die... As I mentioned, I think God reveals himself to you, right? There's no, there's no intermediate state. I think this is what sort of the particular judgment is, right? Is God reveals himself to you. And then you can have reactions to it. I think the reactions go on over time. So I think the way to think about it is like this. This is what we think happens in purgatory. There's John Henry Newman has a kind of poem or play called The Dream of Gerontius, where somebody goes to purgatory. And what happens is, he goes up to heaven and he sees God and he's burned and he sort of falls down and he says, I'm not ready yet. I, I'm not worthy to see him. I recognize in God, I recognize all the bad stuff in me and I recognize I have to prepare myself uh, to be worthy of it. Well, I think this is just a, a different way of putting the same point, which is uh, after death, if you're prepared if there's some place in your heart, right, where you're open to God's grace, then it's going to happen. It's mm. going to happen, right? Given enough time, it's going to happen. That's what we pray for people after they die for, is we pray that happens. Um, but for some people, it's not impossible that they've shut out grace from their heart at the moment they die. Um, mm. 
I, I don't, as I said, I don't think it really matters sort of the time, right? Because we're talking about eschatology, things, things outside of the normal kind of time. So I think mm -hmm. the sort of way to think about it is we, we can't know what the psychology of that is like, but it makes good sense for me to just sort of imagine it as like people can repent after they die, but some don't, mm. you know, I mean, okay. I, I just don't think it really matters as much, you know, I would say you should prepare yourself to die well. And that's what matters, right? Because we don't know what happens after we die. Um, and we know we have time here. But I think mm -hmm. this sort of exactly how the postmortem repentance is supposed to work is not actually all that critical a question. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, one more question. I lied. I had one more thing that I just totally forgot about, but it came back to my mind. Um, I was talking with the Christian philosopher Chad McIntosh yesterday um, and for, for an episode of this podcast. And for people listening, that'll probably be the episode that comes out the week before this one does. Um, so maybe if people are like these hardcore, like adherent, adherent apologetics fan, maybe they listen to that one. Um, but Chad talked about like the Imago Day, and he talked about his view, which is like kind of like the spectrum view where – I mean, to summarize Chad's view, I encourage people to go back and like check out the podcast if you want to know more about it. Um, we resemble God um, in some way. It's essential to humanity. And, it's, and the way we resemble God is like we resemble like Christ in some sense. Um, and we're either becoming like closer to resembling Christ um, as we grow in like sanctification and whatnot or farther from resembling Christ um, because we're becoming less sanctified, more sinful. Um, in Chad's view, like this is what makes us human. Um and what Chad thinks is like he would think if we're going to hold to like an orthodox doctrine of hell, he wants to say something that like the more we sin and the less we become like Christ, like, like almost like decrease in sanctification, I guess you could say, um, we lose our humanity. And as we become like totally just like apart from him, that's where hell is, um, where you lose your humanity and like you're just totally like away from Christ. So I probably didn't do the best job of summarizing Chad's view. But like with what I gave you, what would you kind of think about like that view of hell? Yeah, so I think this is helpful for two reasons. Uh, it's helpful for me to give you why I think universalism is wrong. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it, like the deep question. So I've given you some like responses, right? I think, mm -hmm. I think most people just need to be explained what the doctrine really is, okay? Yeah. For, for them to see that hell is not, you know, a lot of people think God is punishing people and tormenting people and it's all about pain and you know, scary stuff. Uh, I, I think it isn't. I think it's really about hope in God. But uh, I can understand Chad's point, but I'll, I'll put it on this side. I think he's made a confusion. Uh, that confusion is, a, I'm afraid, a typical Protestant one. It's what we, we, we divided over at the Council of Trent, which was whether, whether people are human when they sin. And uh, we say, yes, we say people don't lose. They can't lose the image of God that way. So when you, when you cease to be in grace, you don't cease to be a human being. Mm. When you cease to be in grace, you don't cease to be a human being. So original sin didn't lose us our human nature. So that's what some people kind of said. They said, after we sinned, uh, we lost all ability to do any good at all. We lost all natural goods. We're, we're somehow uh, determined to sin and all this stuff. And the Catholic Church said, nope, uh, <laughs> uh, we still have natural goods, right? Uh, there's the things of nature God didn't take away. Our nature was wounded, not, not destroyed, 
is what they said. So I think the difficulty in what that person said, Chad McIntosh, is you might get worried that if the Imago Dei like ceases in somebody, well, they just cease to exist, right? You just cease to be a human being if you cease to have the image of God in you. And the other side of it is the uh, grace we receive from God isn't the same thing we have by nature. So we need to be careful to distinguish these two things, right? So this is, I think, what this is the error I think the universalists make. I think it's the inverse error of what I'm talking about in, in perhaps your friend Chad. Uh, the inverse error is to think something like, uh, to miss something about grace. Grace is a share in God's own nature, God's own life. That's what it is to be in a state of grace, is to live God's own life. So uh, you can lose that and not cease to be human, right? Because God's nature is not my nature, right? My nature is human. His is divine. So I can stop being divine, right? Stop living God's life and still live a human life. Um, the opposite side of it for universalism, I'll just end on this thought, is to say, they want to say something like this. There's no possible reason God could allow us to not live his life. Not live his life. God, God has to make us live his life. I don't mean make here by force us. I just mean like there's no possible way God could allow us, God could permit it, that a hu he creates a human being who's not living his life, not living the life of God. Well, the difficulty with that view is we would be by nature divine. We would be by nature not just an image of God, but divine. We would be God, right? We'd be like a part of him or something, right? If God himself couldn't, couldn't create a human being that's not, a, not in his nature, in his life, it looks like we're, we deserve grace, is a way of putting it. We're owed grace by what we are. That's what we call Pelagianism, right? Is that doctrine we were, we were owed grace, um, Pelagius was famous for, for this view that we can do things, we can do good things, and God should give us grace. That's, that's how we get grace, is you do good things and God gives you grace. And we said, well, that doesn't make any sense because God is the origin of all goodness and being. So, like, how could you do anything good without God, you know, doing it, right, Make it helping you do it? So that doesn't make any sense. Well, I think universalists make a similar mistake. They want to say human beings by what they are by what they are, God has to save them. God has to save them. So unlike Pelagius, they don't think you have to do something to get grace, but they think what it is to be human merits grace, right? Deserves grace. God would be evil to allow us to go to hell. Well, if I put it this way, that's very similar to what your friend Chad was saying, is if grace is just having the Imago Dei and we are just graced by nature, Right, that's what it is to be human: is to be divine, is to have Christ's own nature somehow. Well, I mean, Christ was divine, right? So if we were by nature in that, in the image of Christ that way, things would be bad. That wouldn't make sense. So when we say we have the image of God in us, we should think about those ways in which our nature resembles God, right? Our our nature, we have an intellect and will. This is this is what the church fathers talk about when they say. How did God make us in his image? He made us able to know and love. Able to know and love. 
So that's how we're in his image. And we're we're in his image in other ways too, right? We're conscious and we we have a physical body, right? And there are other things that that uh, uh, like his providence over the universe, right? That's sort of the model they set. Um, so there are ways in which we're in the image of God, but I think it's very dangerous to confuse nature and grace. And mm. I think that's where a lot of these problems with hell ultimately hit the rocks on doctrine, right? Because they, they'll say things like this. This is, this is the sort of implication. Sin that loses you grace is literally impossible, right? Metaphysically impossible. Well, I think like the cross doesn't make any sense that way, right? The cross doesn't make any sense if it was impossible for us to, to, to lose grace, right? Why would God need to atone to reconcile with us if we really couldn't lose it, if God necessarily had to give us grace? Or what you say is God had to die on the cross. God couldn't do anything else. God had to die there um, because just because we were human, God had to die there. Well, I mean, I think in one way, God, God we can say it was part of God's plan to die, so God couldn't leave us in ruin, we might say, after he had decided to give us grace and we rejected it. God couldn't just leave us in ruin. But on the other side, I think that uh, the idea that the cross is necessary to God's nature or like uh, the cross, dying on the cross would just be something Jesus would do of necessity because of what we are. That doesn't make any sense, I think, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Hard to sort of parse that out there in that last thought, but... Anyway, I think there's a sort of deep problem here about how universalism involves a kind of mix-up between nature and grace. Mm. Okay. Well, Father Rooney, thank you so much for coming on today. There's been so many like interesting like topics. Is there anything else you want to like mention or bring up before we start to wrap up here? Well, what do you think about the Catholic Church? We mentioned that <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> now I don't I know. I... All, my, all, all the wisdom of our great tradition. Uh, mm -hmm. dumping it on you what do you think of mm -hmm. all this yeah it's interesting like i didn't grow up catholic um i never really understood what catholicism was until about maybe like two-ish years ago when i really started to be like okay well this is what's going on here and like it's not just like all these things that like you just like culturally assume i guess um and i don't know i mean there's parts of Catholicism more like that makes sense to me like thinking about things like having the idea of like the great tradition um and things along those lines uh and then there's parts of it where I'm just like I I just I don't know like thinking like the idea of like uh and I know there's responses to everything I'm about to say but it's just like for me like I, I look at things like wondering like well so the true church is like just the catholic church but then so then everyone else isn't part of the true church but then they're christians but then there's this idea of like the priesthood of all believers and i'm just like to, to me i just kind of like uh, i don't know about that um thinking about like the papacy and i'm just like i i'm not sure if that's true um just things like that it's not like i've like went into like this deep dive in catholicism and i have all these like amazing mm -hmm. objections it's just that's kind of where i'm at right now as i'm just like yeah, fine, there's a few I, things I, where i'm just like i don't think like either i need to believe that or i just don't think that's true so yeah, yeah. i mean i'll i'll just say a little bit in conclusion to sort of why why i think it's true so i'll say i'm also i'm byzantine catholic so i'm kind of on the the orthodox side of things um mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll say, here's here's what I think is important. I mean, I think there are lots of, like, nice side side things, right? Like, I think the liturgy is good, right? 
I think the spiritual tradition is good, right? We have lots of spirituality, like the rosary and, and, and mental prayer and lots of history of talk about spirituality that I think is missing from, from Protestant churches. But all that aside, uh, I think that's incidental. Um, I think what's really central for me is probably sort of two things that are closely connected, one of which is sort of the unity in love, and the other is the unity in faith. So I, I'd say, you know, it seems to me Jesus really intended us to be to be one, right? I think he intended mm -hmm. the church to be visibly one. Um, and uh, I think you see that in the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, uh, that the church is, is, it's a sin to break communion with the church, uh, to break communion with believers. Uh, I think that's quite true, except if there's heresy or something, right? There's, there's, there's a sin involved in breaking up the church. Uh, that means the church ought to be one. So I'll say in that respect, we Catholics think that uh, non-Catholic Christians are in some sense a part of the church. There's a famous document, Mystici Corporis, where we talk about the way in which different, different uh, non-Catholics are, are related to us. And we say something like this. This is a famous statement at Vatican II, is, is the, the, church, the, the Church of Christ subsists in the Roman Catholic Church. What we mean by that is um, Christ gave us certain leaders. The leaders are the people that are in the, in the Catholic Church, and we have the fullness of all that. But that doesn't mean other people don't have any of it. So as you put it, right, non-Catholic Christians that are baptized are part of the priesthood of believers. And they haven't consciously, intentionally broken communion with the church or anything. They're not separated by sin that way, right? They didn't choose to grow up outside the church. So it's an accident. Um, so we think in that way, these people are related to the church. They're just sort of, you know, uh, they're sort of Catholics that grew up outside the church, right? That's sort of one way to think of it. Um, Catholic Church is supposed to be all those people united in faith and love. That's what we mean by Catholic, right? So it, it extends to those people in, in, in some ways. Um, but the unity in faith, I think, is important, too. I think the unity in love on this earth is not going to really happen unless you have ways to, to hold people together, right? Visible leadership. Bishops, I think, right? The College of Bishops. They have to be one. They have to have some mechanisms for having physical uh, uh, governmental unity, right? Where they form a, a governmental decision-making body that is one, it's united. Um, and we have to be able then on the question of faith to determine who is and is not a member of the church in an authoritative way. I should say not member of the church. What is and is not the church's faith, I think, in an authoritative way. So I mean like uh, the church has had to face this many times in its history when we talk about, uh, you know, Arianism or any of these other famous heresies, Pelagianism, right? When the church taught that those things were wrong, I think they had good reason to do so. I defend their theology, right? I think there are good arguments from the Bible, from reason, why like Pelagianism is wrong. But I think there's something important about the nature of faith that means we don't believe things just because we think they're true. We believe them because we think God tells them, tells tells us to believe them. God has told us to them, told us these things, like the Bible. And I think that uh, 
the authority of the Bible doesn't make any sense. This is the way I put it. I think the, the authority of the Bible doesn't make any sense unless there is uh, a church that presents it, that is able to say these preachers of its message are teaching what's right <laughs> and these people are teaching what's wrong. So I think unless they can act with God's authority, with a divine mission from Jesus, from the apostles, I just don't think it makes sense uh, because it looks like then you're just believing what you want to believe. Uh, you're not believing what really God wants you to believe uh, in the end of the day. You know, when you, it, it only comes up really prominently when there's a fight, right? When there's a fight about what, what's, what God wants us to believe. But I think at the end of the day, that's what you have to believe is you have to believe the church, the people Jesus left here, the apostles, well, they're the people that knew what Jesus wanted. And so they have an authority that the other people don't. And their successors have an authority then other people don't. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you can't, you can't do without that. So that's why I'm Catholic. Now, notice I haven't said anything about the Pope. So I think that's, <laughs> I think the Pope is sort of, people overly focus on the Pope. I think you just think about the bishops, think about doctrine. I think you have a good, a good perspective on, on why this might be true. Mm. Well, I appreciate that a lot. And maybe we'll do something in the future where we can talk about that, like in more detail, because there's thoughts kind of coming off my mind. Um, but I think that's another day's conversation. So, yeah. um, or maybe email or we'll figure it out. So, well, I appreciate you a lot and everything you're doing and your heart for people. And like, even like me, like you want to talk to me about like the Catholic church, even when we've been talking about like hell for like over an hour. Um, so I appreciate that a lot. Do you just share like father Rooney, like one, how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that. Um, and then two, like what projects are you working on in the future? Yeah. So you're most welcome to follow me through my, um, I have a, it depends how academic you are. I have a professional website. You can just look me up. I've published stuff, so it, it comes up. It's a Google Sites page. Uh, I have Twitter and Facebook, but that's usually kind of crazy stuff. So unless you want to follow all my crazy fights with, with people on the internet, uh, you probably want to read. Uh, for instance, I have I put everything up that I, I write. It's a journal article or a conference paper usually on my academia.edu uh, site there. So I put up papers there. Uh, also, fill papers uh, if you're interested in philosophy stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it's all up on the internet somewhere, so you can follow me that way. Uh, what I'm working on now, I've been working a lot on political philosophy. So I've been working a lot on this kind of people, this this kind of view I don't really like uh, among some Catholics and uh, some Confucians. That's a kind of authoritarianism called integralism. So I've been writing about political philosophy, about freedom, freedom of religion and worship and why we have free and open societies. I have a book coming out on, on that stuff called uh, Beyond Classical Liberalism. It's an edited book with another a Jesuit from Germany named uh, Patrick Zoll. So that's coming out in the fall. And uh, I'm working on two books at the moment that I'm hoping will eventually get, get finished. Uh, one of which is, is gonna be called Not a Hope in Hell on Grace and Free Will. Uh, where I hope to incorporate some of what I'm talking with you here in a more rigorous academic way. And I'm working on a book on what's called on methodology and metaphysics. I'm calling it currently metaphysics demystified, but I, I don't know if that's a good word, a good, good title. Uh, so those are sort of projects I'm working on at the moment. Well, that's awesome. It seems like you got a lot going on, Father Rooney. So that's awesome. Um, thank you so much for coming on. 
I hope everyone checks out your stuff. I'll leave some links down below where people can like follow you. Um, and yeah, that's that. Thank you everyone for listening today. If you're new to here in apologetics, I'd always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider go becoming a patron at patreon.com. We try to get one new patron a month. So if that could be you, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. That would be huge. Um, but yeah, Father Rooney, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really interesting conversation. Learned a lot and there's a lot to think about. Um, well, I'm glad it's not bedtime you. for me. God bless you. A lot. You know, let's pray for each other. <laughs> yes. Amen. Um, have a good one. Thank you so much. And God bless everyone. We'll catch